Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, recent headlines about so-called forever chemicals and concerns about water filter effectiveness after a recent lawsuit accusing Brita of false advertising are again raising questions about the safety and quality of our drinking water. In California, it's generally regarded as safe, but as with so many things, it depends on where in the state you live. This hour, we'll learn about resources to help you determine the safety of what's coming out of your tap and the latest science on drinking water contaminants. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Concern is growing over the safety of our drinking water after researchers with the U.S. Geological Survey last month found nearly half the nation's tap water contained PFAS. The study is one of the most extensive federal studies to look directly at water coming from public supplies and private wells, and in California found that exposure to these so-called forever chemicals appeared more common in urban areas across southern and central California. So, How dangerous are these chemicals, and what can we do about them? Joining me is Tasha Stoiber, a senior scientist at Environmental Working Group. Tasha, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Gregory Pierce, director of Human Right to Water Solutions Lab at UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. Gregory, glad to have you as well. Yep, likewise. Thanks for having me. So, Tasha, let me start with you. And can you just start by telling us what PFAS are? Sure, that's a great place to start. So PFAS, some people call them, they're also known as the forever chemicals um, because they tend to not break down once they get into the environment. But these are the chemicals that people might be familiar with as Teflon chemicals or Scotchgard chemicals. They're used in a number of different consumer products for their stain resistant properties, 
um, to waterproof things. Um, and they're used in everything from outdoor gear, um, footwear, uh, cosmetics, uh, carpets, different textiles. They're just used in a number of different products, um, as well as a number of different industrial applications. Um, and they've been used for so long um, and used without much regulations. And, and so now, since they tend to not break down once they get into the environment, they are now being found in our drinking water. Um, and that's that's a huge problem. Yeah. And as a result of being found in our drinking water, also safe to say that it's in us, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, actually, California's biomonitoring, um, one of their latest biomonitoring projects, um, I believe the results were just released, um, and 99% of people tested had PFAS in their blood. And that is also similar to the CDC's biomonitoring national testing, which has also found PFAS in nearly everyone that has been tested. So these chemicals are in our bodies, they're in our bloods, and we're being exposed to them right now. And as you say, they're forever chemicals or call that because they take a long time to break down and leave. So Gregory, how dangerous are these chemicals? Well, there's growing evidence around the health impacts of uh, PFOS or forever chemicals. And I think we're discovering more and more. Uh, this is something that really wasn't on the radar for even a lot of scientists um, five to 10 years ago about the health risks. I'd say that being said, um, it, we still don't have regulatory standards um, for the thresholds for safety around health risk for PFOS mm -hmm. and water. Those are being developed currently. And I would emphasize that from a relative risk perspective, as far as I've seen the evidence, although I'd be interested to hear what my colleagues have to say here, uh, PFOS is still not the first order concern we should have or do have with safety of drinking water. There's 98 other contaminants that are already regulated as quote unquote primary contaminants um, that we need to treat out of our drinking water. We need to address those first. And as PFOS uh, adds to that list, also uh, address PFOS. Um, but hmm. it's it's a lot on, on a going to be on a long list of contaminants that we need to be concerned with, and we haven't addressed a lot of the contaminants on our primary list um, that certainly have very acute uh, health effects. So I think we really need to focus there. And also, PFOS does enter human bodies through a number of different pathways, and I think there's you know again growing evidence about the number of different pathways and the relative ways it enters, but um, uh, just to emphasize that PFOS is not only um, coming to people through drinking water. So we need to sort that out and um, also address the other pathways. Yeah. And I want to get to what's on that long list in a moment. But Tasha, you know, this new study by the U.S. Geological Survey found a higher concentration of these chemicals in urban areas in Southern and Central California. Why? Do you think that it exists more often or exposure is more common in cities and why in these regions? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we look at the sources of contamination, it makes sense that there would be more um, contaminated water sources near where people are um, because PFAS 
can contaminate the environment from um, things like um, leaching landfills. It can contaminate surface water sources from the discharge of wastewater treatment plants. Um, and also the use of AFFF firefighting foam around airports, military sites, oil refineries, things like that. Yeah. The use of, of that um, has leached into the environment. And so it's, you know, the manufacture and use of these chemicals. And that tends to be more around highly populated areas. Um, and then when you have um, releases to air, water, land, um, it subsequently finds its way into our drinking water sources. Um, so that's why it pollution um, in those populated areas tracks with what we know about where PFAS is coming from. So Gregory was saying that it's in a lot of places in addition to our drinking water supply, um, but you've looked specifically at our drinking water. What can people do if they want to limit their exposure or the risks that come with exposure? What does EWG say or offer as potential avenues? Right. There are some things that you can do, but of course, um, there's no way to limit all, all exposures because there are um, like it was said, there, there are so many different pathways. Um, and, and certainly at the individual level, I will say it is very difficult um, to reduce these exposures um, because what we do need are top-down federal regulations that regulates the whole class of these chemicals. Um, so it's, it is it is difficult for the individual to take actions, but there are things that you can do. Um, number one being that you can filter your drinking water if you know that it is contaminated. Um, if you do live in a highly contaminated area, that can be a significant source. Um, but as it was said, we are exposed in a number of different ways too. Food can also be a pathway. Um, food packaging um, can dust, be a source of PFAS. Yeah. Um, household dust, of course, as you just mentioned, um, if you are a um, small child that's crawling around on a carpet um, and putting your hands to your mouth um, and your carpet has been, it's an older carpet that has been treated um, with a stain treatment, um, that can be a number one route for that particular demographic. So since we do have household items um, like carpets, textiles, um, clothing, things like that, the PFAS doesn't tend to stay in those items. It flakes off and it can deposit in household dust where it can be inhaled. Um, so food can be an exposure route as well as inhaling it through dust, as well as drinking water. Um, so trying to limit the number of products that you take home that contain PFAS, um, that can be a way to reduce exposures. But once again, since it is used so ubiquitously um, and you might not be aware in some products, if it does contain PFAS, that can be difficult. But generally, if you try to avoid products that are marketed as stain resistant, um, wrinkle resistant, um, things like that, that can be a good indication that something might contain 
um, PFAS. Yeah, so meaning with Scotchgard, nonstick cookware, and so on. But you know, Tasha, right. there were a couple of resources from EWG that I did find helpful. One was a map um, that asked you to put your, uh, you know, zip code in and tells you about uh, whether or not it passes basic federal standards and whether or not it passes EWG standards for contaminants in drinking water. Where can people access that? Yes, so the Tap Water Database is an online free resource that anyone can access at, e at ewg.org or ewg.org backslash tapwater. And anyone can type in their zip code and um, look up their drinking water to see if their drinking water has, has PFAS or other drinking water contaminants. Um, and we also have um, EWG's interactive map um, that has just been updated um, with more federal um, drinking water data from the UCMR5 program. Um, so those are, are great places, um, great resources to start with to research your drinking water to find out if, it, if you do live in an area that does have PFAS contamination. I also found um, your study looking at different filters that are on the market informative as well. Do you want to talk about where folks can find that and what you found from that? Sure. So we get a lot of questions about what filters work to filter out PFAS in your drinking water. Um, and again, that is one of the steps that you can take to reduce exposure if you know that you do have PFAS in your drinking water. Um, and we recently undertook a testing project looking at um, some countertop filters and how effective they are. Um, they are effective um, some are more effective and some are, are less effective. So it, 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 it does depend a bit on the countertop filter. Some aren't designed to remove PFAS, but there are some that are a little bit more effective. And those filters are, they tend to be more cost-effective than for example, your, your reverse osmosis technology filters. Um, those are going to be the most effective to remove things like PFAS, but they are a little bit more involved in terms of there's um, so a few more installation steps. They tend to be more expensive. So your countertop filters might be a bit more accessible for a lot of people. Um, yeah. You can buy them, you can take them home and start using them the same day. And some of them from the results from our testing um, did, did show some um, pretty good effect effectiveness. Um, but it, but you do need to do your research because not every <laughs> countertop filter um, is going to work. Yeah, you sure do. It's well. complicated. And uh, we're talking with Tasha Stoiber, a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, and Gregory Pierce of UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. And we'll have more with your questions and comments, listeners, after the break. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the state of our drinking water in California and how to find out if your drinking water is safe. We're with Gregory Pierce, Director of the Human Right to Water Solutions Lab at UCLA, Tasha Stoiber, Senior Scientist at Environmental Working Group, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the quality of your tap water or how to find out if it's safe? Do you live in an area without access to clean drinking water? How do you deal with that? Do you filter your tap water? Why or why not? You can even Email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So, Gregory, you were talking about how PFAS are just one of many chemicals and concerning things that we should be looking at when it comes to drinking water in California. So what what are some of the ones that you say even rise above concerns for you about PFAS? Yeah, again, there's a list of 98 contaminants that are primary and that every water system in California and in the U.S. that's regulated um, has to treat out of water to meet standards or otherwise uh, face the consequences. And I'd say, again, since there's 98, I won't go through the whole list, but- No, uh, please don't. (laughs) Arsenic, nitrate, uh, basic sort of presence of uh, coliform E. coli are higher on the list, as well as there's a number of other chemicals, um, disinfection byproducts come to mind, as well as things like 1,2,3-TCP, hexavalent chromium that um, we have issues with here. Again, it's it's a pretty small subset of systems, um, but we have around a million people who don't have safe drinking water. And a lot of those issues are concentrated with those contaminants. And it's my view that we really need to focus um, and, and up our focus on addressing those issues um, in addition to taking into account PFOS and other emerging contaminants. Yeah. And Gregory, you know this because you led a state drinking water needs assessment that looked at California's water systems a few years ago. So what would you say about the overall safety of the state's drinking water? It's a great question that's really hard to answer. Again, in so much as the state's a big place, we have 3,000 different water systems. It looks much, much different in terms of utilities than we have on the energy side. So every drinking water system is different and relies on at least a combination of different sources. That being said, our study and, and plenty of other studies show that for 90%, probably higher than 90% of the state's population, um, their drinking water systems meeting all of those standards. Again, PFOS isn't yet on the standard list, so that might change, will change when PFOS is added. Um, but th- we still care, um, and 5% or and maybe up to 10% of the state doesn't have safe drinking water, uh, water that meets the standards, and that's a lot of people. Um, and that's what the drinking water needs assessment uh, that we started helping the state water board out on 
um, was focused on. And that's what the effort by the state water board still focuses on um, because there's still a lot of people who don't have water that's safe by anyone's definition across the state. Yeah. And, and that 90 to 95, it's because, you know, you really looked at like 3,000 or so water systems and found basically like hundreds of those failing the basic assessment, right? Or maybe three or 400 of those, if my memory serves. Yeah, that's correct. And again, a lot of those systems, I, I believe 80 to 90% of those are, are really small. They serve 500 uh, people or less. Mm. And I left out that, why I say 90 to 95% of people have safe drinking water. We do have somewhere, uh, we, again, we don't quite know, but between three and 6% of the state is not served by a public water system. They rely on private wells. We have some data on the quality of those wells, but they're not fully regulated. Um, and so we just have estimates there as to the safety of their water. Yeah. Well, we've got questions coming in, and this sister wants to know, is bottled spring water contaminated with PFAS, Gregory? Well, so here it gets even more complicated because bottled water is certainly not regulated to the same extent as the water that comes out of your tap, assuming you're served by a public system. And so the answer to that really depends on the source of the bottled spring water and um and also the filtration that the bottled water company is using, if any. A lot of bottled water is just tap water recycled. Um, when tests are done about, on average, the quality of bottled water, it doesn't look better than uh, utility water. That being said, there are certainly some bottled water companies that use reverse osmosis and advanced technologies that would ensure um, the elimination of or reduction of PFAS. So I can't answer the question in the abstract. Um, but in general, I would say you're better off relying on tap water and certainly filtration, if you can afford that, than your average bottled water. Yeah. Well, Holly writes, as, um, as most water filters are made out of plastic, will people be exposed to the many chemicals and plastics in an effort to reduce PFAS exposure? I avoid plastic consumption as much as possible, including using a ceramic filter for making coffee as coffee machines run hot, acidic liquid through they're plastic. Um, Tasha, do you have any insights into this in terms of just the water filters that are made of plastic and that contributing if you're actually trying to get rid of some of these chemicals? Yeah, that's a good question. There are a, a number of different types of water filters out there. Um, and there's a couple types that have um, um, like a stainless steel housing. So there is an option if you want to try to mostly stay away from plastic. There are, are a couple water filters out there that just use the activated carbon and the stainless steel. Um, but um, there, you know, there are different types of plastic, some that are, um, you know, leach chemicals and some that leach fewer chemicals. Um, so that, that's definitely a good question. But if you're trying to stay away from plastic, there are some types of filters that um, use minimal plastic. Well, I want to bring into the conversation now Susanna Deonda, co-founder and executive director of Community Water Center, a nonprofit environmental justice organization based in California's San Joaquin Valley and Central Coast. Susanna, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you. So we are learning about ways to try to make our drinking water safer, learning about the state of California's 
drinking water and also about the variability of its quality, depending on where you live. And I want to ask you about communities in the Central Valley and what they're facing when it comes to the quality of their water and their ability to access safe drinking water. Happy to share. Community Water Center is rooted in the San Joaquin Valley in California, but it's important to recognize that while the issues are highly concentrated in the areas we work in, by all means, it does not mean that it's not existing in different areas. Yeah. And I do want to reinforce that the lack of good data on PFAS is why we're not seeing more of that in other areas. Um, so it's important to recognize that it's not just a city problem. It also could be a rural and a private well domestic problem. But the problem is we're not testing for PFAS to recognize that it may be in our drinking water. So that said, in California, we have over 1 million Californians exposed to illegal and unsafe levels of contaminants found in their tap water on a daily basis. That means that people are having to pay twice for water for an expensive water bill that is not providing them safe, reliable drinking water. And that means that our low-income people of color are having to make ends meet to ensure that they can provide safe drinking water for their families. And as was discussed earlier, it's also important to recognize the alternative solutions for many for many of our families is vented water, is, um, you know, bottled water. But we all know that that industry is not regulated as, as well, uh, is not regulated like public water systems. So that alternative water, while it's safer from the tap water, it's still not guaranteed to provide safe drinking water. Yeah. Susanna, what contaminants are you most concerned about that at least um, are being tested for and that you know exist? Absolutely. You know, we are definitely concerned with primary regulated contaminants, but at the same time, equally important, we're also very concerned with emerging emerging contaminants that are not regulated. And it's important to recognize that we can't wait until dire situations continue to happen for us to regulate emerging contaminants like PFOS, like chromium-6. So the primary contaminants that we're seeing that are out of compliance in many of the systems that we work with is nitrates. Nitrates Mm. is a primary contaminant that is a very serious contaminant. It has no smell or a taste. You have to know if that's in your drinking water. And that means that you have to make sure that your water provider is providing good information for you to understand water quality, for you to understand that you may have nitrates over the legal limit so that you have the right information to make informed decisions. So nitrate, we've seen this contaminant plague our drinking water for decades. And it still hasn't been addressed. And, you know, the problem is we have to regulate where the pollution is coming from and at the same time provide adequate resources so that we can design long-term solutions with our communities. And where it's coming from are things, as you allude to, fertilizer, pesticides, dairy waste, and so on? No, there was a study done in 2012 by Thomas Harder, who clearly articulated that the three main sources that contribute to nitrate contamination is chemical fertilizer, animal manure, and leaky septic tanks. So we know where the source is coming from. So we need to be that much more intentional in creating programs to control pollution. And, you know, Susanna, there's been a lot more attention. There was a recent piece in the New York Times about groundwater. And I know the Central Valley is very familiar with subsidence and the fact that groundwater levels and groundwater is being depleted quickly. Could you talk a little bit about that? And if you think there is a connection between um, groundwater depletion and water quality. Absolutely. So it's important to recognize that in the state, we have two sources of water. We have groundwater and we have surface water. 
So systems can either have both or they're heavily reliant on one or the other. Here in the Central Valley, the vast majority of our public water systems, including domestic wells, obviously, rely on groundwater. Yes. And so when we have major droughts, major overpumping of our groundwater sources, that leads toward increased contamination and subsidence. And when land subsides, we lose the capacity to store groundwater underneath our feet. And it's important to recognize that we need to have better control over using that primary source of drinking water. In California in 2006, 2016, we were successful in passing the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act for the first time in California to ensure that we can control and manage groundwater for beneficial uses and to really have an eye on making sure that those residents and public water systems that rely on groundwater are primarily addressed and considered in the planning of groundwater and overpumping. We're talking with Susanna Danda, co-founder and executive director of Community Water Center, a nonprofit environmental justice organization based in the state San Joaquin Valley and in Central Coast. We're also talking with Tasha Stoiber, senior scientist at Environmental Working Group, and Gregory Pierce, director of Human Right to Water Solutions Lab at UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. And we're talking with you, our listeners, taking your questions and comments about the quality of your tap water. And if you live in an area without access to clean drinking water, how you cope in those situations, what solutions would help you. Also, your practices around filtering tap water, your questions around bottled water. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, threads. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. And you can call us at 866-733-6786. Well, the sister writes, what health or medical issues are created or exacerbated by drinking water contaminants? And maybe, Tasha, we can start with PFAS. Like, what are the concerns about the health impacts of PFAS? Sure. There are a number of concerns about exposure to PFAS. Um, I don't think there isn't a system in the body that might not be affected by PFAS exposure. Um, our immune systems are incredibly sensitive to PFAS. It can um, cause things like reduced response to vaccines and, and lowered antibody responses. Um, PFAS has also been linked to several different types of cancer, kidney cancer, testicular cancer. It can um, cause changes in cholesterol in the body, liver and kidney damage, um, reproductive harms like low birth weight or pregnancy-related um, high blood pressure. Um, so certainly um, those demographics may be more um, sensitive to PFAS exposure and also things like harm to um, thyroid and uh, hormone disruption. So there are a number of health impacts that we are concerned about. And then in terms of the health impacts of nitrates, uh, Susanna, what would you say are some of the key ones? Yeah, you know, nitrates have been linked for, towards kidney disease, cancer, the blue baby syndrome, which is when a baby that is six months of age ingests high levels of nitrates, the body literally will not be able to absorb oxygen so it turns blue. And while we hear all these impacts around these contaminants, it's just a really good indication that we as individuals really need to take, we really need to take control of our drinking water and really ensure that we know what exactly do we have in our drinking water and be well informed on the next step. And while we can have a multiple, uh, we can have multiple types of contaminants, it's really key to understand that because if you're going to think of a, a filter, it's got to be certified to remove whatever condition you might have or whatever contaminant you might have. And so often in our areas, we don't have a certified filtration device that can reduce the concentration to a standard because we have multiple contaminants out of that. They're really high. They're mm. out of, you know, they're out of compliance. So that, again, I really think it's important that as the consumer and people that are listening 
take control of that. But also at the end of the day, I also agree and believe that we need to hold polluters accountable and we need to ensure that regulators are doing a better job of regulating this pollution. And then filters should be an option, not a mandatory solution for many residents. Let me go to Kenny in Hemet. Hi, Kenny. Join us. You're on. Hi, Kenny. Are you there? All right. Looks like we lost Kenny. Let me go to Rob next. Hi, Rob. Thank you. Um, I live in San Francisco and grew up here. Um, I'm 60 years old. And throughout my life, we've always considered San Francisco's drinking water to be the best around. We've bragged about it. We've even had our own brand of bottled water for a while because the Hetch water system is uh, is so good. But a few years ago, they started introducing groundwater into our drinking water and blending it. And I just looked at the uh, website where you talk about whether your municipality's water is safe. And I was a little bit taken aback by all the contaminants that are in it and thought maybe San Francisco's water is not what it either used to be or uh, has it changed? Is the introduction of groundwater affecting our water quality? Is it just the fact mm. that there's more upstream pollution? Is it just more chemicals in the environment? I mean, why would our water uh, not be uh, the way we always thought it was? Yeah. T- Tasha, any thoughts about that? Sure, I can comment there. So I think it's not uncommon for utilities to rely on several different sources of drinking water. Um, And often that can be a blend of surface water or groundwater. And this might change too, depending on the season of the year. Um, Or or for example, if a well has been taken out of service um, because there are contaminants. so it's it's not uncommon to rely on several different sources or blending of, of, of drinking water. And in terms of contaminants, surface water versus groundwater, you, you may have um, different contaminants that are a concern um, based on that source. Um, groundwater, of course, um, because of the nature of it, um, you may have you may see things like um, arsenic or or other um, radiologicals or things like that. Um, but with surface water, um, that that may have um, some natural organic matter in it when it's treated, that's when you get things like disinfection byproducts. So, there, so depending on the source, that can affect the different types of contaminants. But I do agree that San Francisco um, does have um, pretty good groundwater compared to a number of other systems in California. And of course, it is going to be um, drinking water quality is going to vary quite a bit based on the utility and where you are in the state. And we are talking about the state of our drinking water in California with Tasha Stoiber and Susanna Deanda and Gregory Pierce. And you, our listeners, will have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What questions do you have about the quality of your tap water? We've got Tasha Stoiber with us, a senior scientist at Environmental Working Group, Gregory Pierce, director of Human Right to Water Solutions Lab at UCLA, and Susanna Deanda, co-founder and executive director of Community Water Center. You can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on our social channels, or by giving us a call. And let me go to the phones, and let me see if I can go back to Kenny and Hemet. Hi, Kenny. Thanks. What's your Hello. question? Or what's your comment? Yeah, like I'm a general contractor, and um, usually when I do like kitchen remodels, um, I recommend um, for them to get a re- reverse osmosis filters because they're 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 cheap enough now to say so they could buy them like an Amazon for like two hundred dollars, and they're really easy to install. Uh, people uh, people could do it on their week on the weekend. It comes with all the parts and everything, and uh, usually uh, my clients they call me within six months. Um, they call me within six months to change the filters, and uh, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but the, especially the first filter, the, the paper filter, when I take it out, it's really nasty. I mean, it's it's full of, uh, it looks like it's coffee. <laughs> That's how mm. nasty the water is, <laughs> especially in, 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 like, in poor cities like Hamid, San Jacinto, uh, out, out here in Temecula. It, it seems like the water is less, you know, a lot cleaner. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, people want to buy uh reverse osmosis they're 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 quite cheap now you don't have to spend thousands of dollars to install one Hmm. uh, to do under the cabinet sink yeah um filters well kenny thanks for the tip and i'm glad to hear that reverse osmosis filters in your experience are becoming more affordable this listener writes why can't this filtering be done at the source the places we get our tap water from we should all pay taxes to pay for everyone in the state to have safe water it's crazy to expect each household to be responsible for making sure our water is safe to drink. And let me bring into the conversation now Joaquin Esquivel, chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. Joaquin, so glad to have you on. Good morning, Mina. Thank you for having this discussion. Yeah, really glad to have it and to have your insights on it because, you know, that last comment, for example, was really trying to figure out, so what is the state doing uh, to ensure that Everybody in California has access to safe drinking water because it is a lot for each individual person to, A, navigate figuring out the quality of the drinking water, and then, B, putting the money into trying to filter out whatever contaminants they do exist that happen to be tested for by the state. Talk about some of the state's main priorities or areas of focus. Well, I want to acknowledge that, um, as Greg said, we have uh, around nearly 3,000 what we call community water systems within the state. Um, so that's uh, all systems that uh, supply more than 15 permanent connections. And then if you look at you know, systems that are smaller than that, uh, we have up to you know, 7,000 systems throughout the state. And so the flavors mm. might be, you may be served by a municipal system, uh, you may be served by a community services district. 
Uh, it might be a mutual water company. It might be an investor-owned utility as well, which is about 15% of the state. And so, um, you know, amongst all that, uh, we know that the scale uh, and the, the, if you will, the economies of scale that allow us to be able to afford water are best under the most connections that you can have. Uh, where here again, you know, are like 90% of our violations for maximum contaminant limits were actually uh, in systems below 500 connections. Um, so there's a lot of work going on uh, around consolidation. And I want to acknowledge, and it's thanks to the advocacy of Susanna and, and many folks uh, throughout the state, that the state of California um, has had an ongoing and involving, evolving discussion around access to clean water. And in many ways can be really uh, pegged, you know, the last 50 years where we've seen, you know, expansion of access to drinking water and sanitation, uh, both in the state and nationally. But about 10 years ago, well, 2012, over 10 years ago, now, uh, the state of California actually adopted what's known as a human right to water, uh, enshrined in our, our laws that every Californian should have uh, access to safe, affordable water and sanitation. And, uh, you know, the while passage of that uh, was a real uh, marker in the state's history around this discussion. What it didn't come with was funding or mm -hmm. with uh, any new resources there yet. What we saw after 2012, and we all remember as Californians, was really a drought that accelerated what was already this untenable uh, situation that many of our communities had been under for a generation here without access to clean water. What we saw was communities not having access to any water. And what really that spurred was the, the transfer of the uh, Department of uh, Division of Drinking Water to the state board. And also ultimately with the leadership of Governor Newsom here in 2019, passage of the Safe and Affordable Fund. So, you know, over the last decade, we've had this real upswelling. Uh, you know, Greg uh, mentioned the drinking water needs assessment, where now we have so much more data around our failing systems, where a decade ago, uh, we'd be hard pressed to even tell you which systems weren't meeting maximum contaminant levels uh, in real time. So that real-time data has really led to um, a moment where both the governor and the legislature um, have put billions of dollars um, into drinking water uh, and access to sanitation as well. And you see that mirrored nationally as well with the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, with that momentum, uh, since 2019, the state board is, uh, we've seen 200 systems come back into compliance. Hmm. I'll note that you know, regrettably, and this is the reality, sometimes systems fall back out of compliance. Um, and I think that what we also have are a lot of at-risk systems. So this challenge of, of, of getting to um, economies of scale, uh, you know, consolidation, so we don't have a lot of small failing systems, uh, sometimes systems that are, you know, if you will, too small to succeed amongst the pressures of treating water. And that's where really the, the programs that we have to prevent the pollution of water uh, of our drinking water are so critical uh, because as we see with this discussion around PFAS and, and this whole challenge of emerging con contaminants, it's really a risk-based system and, and, and we're going to continue to need to reinvest in aging infrastructure, let alone the pressures that climate change uh, continue to put onto our water systems. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that, but really quickly. So are you able to force these water systems that are out of compli compliance? Is the state able to force them to fix things? Does it have enforcement mechanisms? Yes. Um, and, and here uh, we also have tools like mandatory consolidation authority. Um, that's something that no other state in the nation has. There again, uh, a product of this, this evolving discussion that we've had with the legislature and the leadership of the state, where the state of California can come in and force two systems to actually um, merge. 
uh, we're a, a you know a, a failing system with a, a system that uh, is maybe a little more more well run. Uh, the the reality is in many of our communities uh, there were decisions uh, to to purposefully not extend municipal service to purposefully, if you will, have islands here both in rural and in urban areas um, uh, in when it comes to the delivery of of water. So the small isolated systems we often find um, aren't consolidated or merged uh, because of uh, you know specific decision-making. And sometimes, uh, and very much times, uh, part of the, the challenge that we have when we come into a community and we're trying to get them to see their common future together through their water yeah. system. Well, you know, with the recent rains we had and the reporting that California is exiting its drought, that leaves people hopeful with regard to, uh, well, the hope is that it would recharge some of our groundwater issues. But but how how is the state doing when it comes to capturing the water uh, that is coming down in years like the one that we've just had, um, where there is more water falling from the sky so that we can address the issues that come with a lack of groundwater that Susanna pointed out to us in terms of its effect on water quality? I really appreciate that question because there has been an incredible amount of work uh, that has been going on the last years and in this last year in practice uh, because of this incredible opportunity that we had, um, I think it's important to to note that California's water systems uh, were built uh, to to acknowledge drought and flood. To you know, many of our our our, our drinking water systems are also flood systems. Um, so the 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 reality is uh, the practice in California it has been one of um, trying to keep uh, the the wet water that into our drought years and extend expand that. The reality is, though, with climate change and the acceleration of the extremes in those droughts and here in these wet years, um, means that we need to just, uh, you know, accelerate that to the nth degree. And to that, uh, the state water board uh, has done on the water rights side of the work that we do a lot of streamlining for uh, groundwater recharge projects here, um, temporary water rights that are a little more flexible, quicker to get approved. And this last year, uh, the state mm. board, we were able to approve 1.2 million acre feet of recharge. Uh, that's through uh, expedited permits um, and also uh, with uh, adjusting uh, the water rights permit for the Central Valley project to about, about 600,000 acre feet of recharge uh, within their service area. So um, that includes a lot of incredible work with the Department of Water Resources, who have been our, you know, our partners and leaders in working with landowners to get in temporary pumps, to here um, take advantage of what we know was an incredible wet year. And what we hope, um, we get additional years to practice these activities. But the reality as well is we, we, we're in this space that we also have to plan for drought. That, you know, is, and we know we have communities that are still um, uh, here feeling the impacts of drought are, are being provided hauled water um, or are on, on other temporary supplies. And yeah. I'll just note that, you know, um, it's been incredible to see the acceleration of that work as well, where these last years and in, in this turn of the drought, if you will, we weren't caught as flat-footed as we were in 2014 and 2015 because well, of uh, the strength of these programs. I I'm glad to hear that. I just have two more quick questions. One of the things that prompted today's show were concerns about PFAS and, of course, that USGS mm -hmm. survey that found a lot of it. At what point will mm -hmm. California set its um, standards with regard to PFAS levels? Uh, at this point, the federal government is looking like they'll be they're on a more accelerated timeline than we are. Uh, we're actually in the middle of consideration of another maximum contaminant 
um, Chromium 6. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, we're clearing the decks of that project, if you will, um, as we, we consider that. And so PFAS was still a number of years out. And as I understand, the federal government um, here is, is looking to, at least on PFOS and PFOA, uh, here, these are the longer chains of what we know are, uh, you know, thousands of variants of of, of polyfluorinated and polyfluorinated um, compounds. Um, so, uh, we what we have set though, I want to make sure and acknowledge is uh, notification levels and and response levels. Um, those um, many water districts are already responding to now. Uh, I think of um, Anaheim. I think of um, uh, Yorlinda. I think of uh, Santa Clarita. Uh, and many in, in Orange County who are having to respond um, uh, or and, and electing to, um, even without a maximum contaminant limit, to be pr- protective for their communities. So California water systems are being proactive on this issue. And I think it's important, again, to remember as we talk about PFAS and the, you know, the number of contaminants that may be out there yeah. that, um, you know, people should be trusting their water systems and being informed, as Susanna said, there is information out there. And it's a big state and it's a good time to be able to best even understand, well, what is the status of my local water uh, supply? What is the safety and how to get involved in the discussions? Well, Joaquin, we also are getting a lot of questions from listeners about filters. Is the state going to give guidance on filters at some point? I think the challenge is uh, you look at the filter standards and they're all federal standards. Um, These are all, you know, the the industry um, is not one that's necessarily tailored even to California specific standards, which are more stringent. Um, and even here in the case of Chromium 6, as we consider that, or say 123 TCP, those aren't um, here uh, federal standards. So, you know, the ability for Californians to really go to the store and say, okay, this, this filter is going to meet California drinking water standards that I expect from my tap is, is a pretty big gap at this point. Um, there's even a gap, you know, as I understand, a lot on those uh, filter standards around even the current federal standards, say around arsenic. Um, so I think um, that the challenge is is a large one. We don't have, uh, you know, the staffing or the resources or you know an entity at this point that can really engage in that standard setting. Um, you know, it's a it's a resource intensive one, and it's why it's you know mainly been dominated one at the national level. But I think that this this discussion is important because you know there are you know point of use like filters or point of entry, like the reverse osmosis system um, and others that that um, can be helpful for communities. And we know are part of the solution, but right now it's a kind of a gray area that does yeah. sometimes uh, create a little mistrust or misinformation around how, how to best be protective for you and your home and your family. Joaquin Esquivel, chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. Really appreciate you giving us your time. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate yeah. it. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Henry next in Santa Rosa. Hi, Henry. You're on. Hi there. Um, I moved to Santa Rosa almost two years ago, and I've noticed that the uh, tap water tastes like chlorine. Mm. What's the deal with that, uh, potentially, Gregory Pierce? Like, should people trust their taste buds? Yeah, great question. I think uh, Susanna alluded to it. Um, In some ways, the things that you can taste, see, smell um, in your water, and or you you may be able to detect in your water, um, are not at the top of the list of what makes water unsafe. That being said, chlorine specifically, uh, you you will smell if your system obviously is using chlorine or, or chlorine byproduct. 
um, periodically, depending on the time of year and the sources that are being used. Um, if it's a, a whiff and it, it goes quickly or it's, you know, at low levels, I, I would say you don't necessarily need to be concerned. You can check your water systems uh, consumer confidence report uh, around disinfection byproducts to see the levels. Um, you can call your water system to do a test at the tap, which many systems, larger systems will do. Um, or you can test your tap water um, through the private market. But in general, um, systems are required to make sure that their systems are properly chlorinated, but not too chlorinated. So your system should be on it. If you think they're not, I would contact them or again, take the other steps I mentioned, um, but just a whiff of chlorine or smelling um, a slight bit of chlorine doesn't mean the water's unsafe. In fact, it probably means uh, the water is safe, but the system may need to adjust its chlorine levels on yeah. the margin. Uh, another question here about pipes really quick. David writes, PVC plastic water pipes can leach dangerous chemicals, including benzene, especially after a fire. Can the guests comment on water utilities' use of PVC plastic water pipes instead of iron pipes and the risk of water contamination? Greg? Yeah, so I would just say briefly, that's a growing concern, especially due to fire. It frankly wasn't fully anticipated. Um by water systems or by a lot of folks. So now water systems are reconsidering the use of PVC pipes. And I do think it's important to note, even going back to the previous question, that the pipes in your home or wherever you live are the responsibility of whoever owns, um, whoever's the landlord or if you're the owner of your own home yourself. Um, it's not the responsibility of the water system or you know, necessarily regulated. So you do need to keep an eye on the pipes that are used on premise. And yeah. if you use PVC pipes, uh, yes, and you're in a fire risk area, that can be a, a big concern. Um, I don't have a recommendation around exactly what types of pipes should be used. Yeah. But we can provide resources on that front. So many variables um, to ensuring your quality of your drinking water. But that said, Susanna, you have said that quality water, water is having a moment. What are you seeing, hopefully, with regard to more, more focus in this area? And we just have 30 seconds. Uh, yes, I think it's just important to recognize that for us in California to deliver on the human right to water dream, all of us need to understand our drinking water quality. So call your water your water bill provider. If you have a domestic well, check for it. You know, we're more than happy to help you figure out what you should be looking for. It's really important that we're well informed on the primary and the emerging contaminants and what that means for our bodies and our health. So stay informed, stay connected, and it's ensure that we all have safe and affordable drinking water every day. Yeah, we can only solve problems when we define the problems. Susanna Deonda. Tasha Stoiberg, Gregory Pierce, thank you so much for joining us. And also thanks to Joaquin Esquivel. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.